who might have had a vision of where the world was headed, where your personal trajectory was headed, where your career was headed, but things have been massively disrupted. And I think these moments of disruption are opportunities for disruptive action and change in meaningful ways. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Welcome to The Good Problem Podcast, Eben. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's lovely to have you here. I want to kick off by asking you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you on a personal level? Uh, So I think I'm interested in ways that, you know, initiatives to do good have resulted in unintended consequences. And many times a rhetoric of goodness can mask other things that are going on. And in the biotech industry, that rhetoric of goodness has often been about kind of biomedical benefits. Um, But the other things that are going on that are being masked by that rhetoric of goodness are capital accumulation, which is good for some, but maybe not so good for others. Absolutely. Do you think that doing good is something that you say you would express in your daily life or is it something that you kind of silo off and and do it in other parts of your life? I guess, you know, I, I see the idea of goodness as, as being related to ideas about ethics. And, and I think of all ethics as, as being relational. You know, you, you don't just come up with ideals or values in a vacuum, but you develop them over the course of human relationships, over the course of relationships with ecological processes and the food systems and industrial systems that keep us alive. And in some ways, it's difficult in the contemporary times to be, you know, independent of systems and processes that you find unethical. So doing good in compromised times is often very, very challenging. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. How would you say that your notion of, of what is good has evolved over time? Um, it's been, you know, I, I guess as an undergrad, I encountered some missionaries that um, were trying to do good. They were trying to, you know, help some folks that didn't have access to modern medicine. This was in, in Panama. And very early in life, I watched a rhetoric of, of goodness fail. And I think, you know, watching that particular case made me skeptical of, of folks who claim that they're doing good. But I, I think as, as I've grown older, I've, I've come to see how to kind of reclaim hope and reclaim the good in projects that are otherwise compromised to to recognize that um, in in these times, there is no such thing as purity of intentions and to think about ways that different values and ethics might come together in an intersectional way to make interesting things possible. Yeah. Eben, you have a fascinating and diverse body of work behind you. And I can tell by the way you're talking that all of that has contributed to how you're talking about doing good. One thing I was looking at when I was researching your background was your work in multi-species ethnography. Can you describe what this is and how you came to work in that space? Because I'd never come across it before. So when I was an undergraduate student, I was interested in biology and also in culture. And in those days, there were prefigured ways of, of integrating, you know, the field of anthropology that's studies culture and the field of biology. I didn't find that any of those ways of bringing the two fields together were working for me. So I started thinking about ways of bringing biological phenomena into anthropology in new ways. And um, together with a 
collaborator, Stefan Helmreich of MIT, um, we coined this new phrase, multi-species ethnography, to think about the ways that human enterprises, that human values, that cultural beliefs, that political systems, that economic enterprises, how, how they change and transform creatures around us, but, but also how other animals and plants and microbes are agents in their own right that really are changing and transforming what it means to be human. So, so multi-species ethnography is about rethinking the human condition while taking account of all the, you know, critters that are in our gut, the microbes that, you know, help us digest the food and influence how we think and feel about the world, but also, you know, the, the animals, plants, and other organisms that are in our homes and our broader environments that are connected to us by commodity chains and industrial uh, assemblages. And how would you say those concepts could be applied to ethical frameworks around science and research that we have now? Well, a lot of modern life has been about alienation. So we're alienated from the ecosystems that give us life, most of us, you know, most of us who live in cities in particular. And, you know, if we're using things like toilet paper or consuming electricity, as, as we're doing now and having this conversation, you know, we're, we're embedded in these industrial systems that are dealing out death and, you know, in some cases, making new forms of life on a massive scale. So, you know, how to be good and how to be ethical in these times is, is really challenging. And I think sometimes it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to lose a sense that, you know, we can impact the world in, in meaningful ways. But, you know, what I've tried to focus on in the, in, um, the various books that I've written are um, ways that we might intervene to bring modest hopes within reach. And let's talk about one of those books, the excellent and riveting book, the Mutant Project, which looks at advances in gene editing technologies in humans and the associated moral challenges around it. What led you down the path of investigating gene editing? And did you ever imagine that the story would play out the way it did? Uh, so in part, I, I got involved in the gene editing story because of a friend. I had finished a book called The Multispecies Salon, which was a curatorial project. It was about uh, biological artists who were basically tinkering with life itself and using genetic engineering techniques to, to change life. And, and one of these artists, Adam Zaretsky, told me about a summit that was happening at the National Academies of Science in Washington, D.C., and he scored me a last minute invite. So I just finished the Multispecies Salon Project and Emergent Ecologies, um, my second book, and um, was kind of looking for a new project. I was teaching at Princeton. I was teaching a course on human nature. And here with this new tool, CRISPR-Cas9, a fast and cheap tool for remaking human nature, I sort of found a way of thinking about what the future of humanity might be. So I followed Adam to the summit and you know, then started following CRISPR around the world, eventually landing in the lab uh, that produced the very first genetically modified children called Lulu and Nana. And in many ways, um, this moment was long in the making, you know, ever since 1952, when Watson and Crick described the DNA double helix, people have been imagining creating genetically modified people. These two children were modified so that they would supposedly resist HIV. This is something that had been tested before. So in some ways, that also wasn't a surprise. But, you know, I, I sort of followed history as it unfolded in real time, as uh, dreams about genetically modifying humanity moved from the realms of speculation into the concrete reality that now we have today. 
Yeah, it's an incredible story. And, and one of the main threads in the book is obviously following the case of the researcher that brought Lulu and Nana into the world. Dr. Ha announced that he'd done so after their birth. Am I correct? Right. And this announcement obviously caused shockwaves and ethical outrage in in various parts of the world, and much of it from scientists whose practice was grounded in Christian traditions and saying embryos shouldn't be modified and so on. What reflections do you have on why Dr. Ha pursued his goal? So in some ways, Dr. Ha had a hammer and was looking for a nail. So, you know, CRISPR was this tool that had been tested out in a variety of contexts. It was known that it could produce targeted damage to DNA, and he was just looking for a good target. And the tools of in vitro fertilization have a long story history, much longer than CRISPR. IVF has been around for more than 40 years now. The very first test tube baby, Louise Brown, was actually celebrating her 40th birthday, the same year that Dr. Ho was engaging in these experiments. So so Louise Brown engaged in this lifelong struggle to be considered normal. And now we have thousands, millions of IVF babies, now fully grown people, living and walking among us. So Dr. Ha saw an opportunity to basically bring two fields of science together. He wasn't trained really in doing this. He was a biophysicist. So in many ways, this was sort of the realm of pure theory that meets up with speculative uh, economy of Silicon Valley. He was a PhD student at Rice, and then went on to a postdoc uh, at Stanford in the heart of Silicon Valley. So so he had a lot of investors. He got backing from government officials in the Communist Party, and he thought it would just be a technical problem to deal with this disease of HIV. But of course, it turned out to be much more complex and much more controversial than he initially imagined. In the book, you paint a fairly vivid picture of the biotech industry in China. You know, massive amounts of money poured into experiments against this backdrop of, in some cases, extreme poverty and lack of access to basic needs there. What do you think is driving the race in China? There's a lot of things driving the race. And and in part in the book, I'm I'm trying to kind of read this, this particular event in scientific history against the backdrop of sort of Western innovation and then the rest of the world trying to catch up. So in China, there's a real drive to become a country of innovators, to be a future oriented society, to produce the sort of disruptive innovation that will um, unravel the hegemony of, of Western modernity. And there's, there's a long history in the West of feeling threatened and, and afraid of scientific developments in China. So if you go way back to 1912, there was a British colonial novel called Dr. Fu Manchu that talked about this evil oriental genius who stole Western knowledge and basically threatened the downfall of civilization. So on the one hand, this is part of a much broader agenda in China to have advancements in cyberspace and robotics and autonomous systems engineering, a whole suite of what President Xi calls frontier technologies. The aim, as I said earlier, is is to disrupt the status quo of of Western modernity. So that's kind of the, the backdrop for this particular experiment. And, you know, within the field of genetics, People have been talking about, again, doing this for a long time. So Dr. Ha saw his moment of opportunity. He walked through that window, but met with some unintended consequences. 
And we won't go into exactly what those were because everybody should definitely read your book. But it does bring up questions around the fact that advances in science are often well in front of the ethical frameworks that we have to deal with them. And we're often doing this retrospectively or or scrambling to, to get in front. Two questions. One, what's missing when it comes to gene editing in this space around ethical frameworks? And two, it kind of raises questions around who's designing these ethical frameworks and where are they applicable and whose ethics are there? And, you know, I'm interested in your perspective on how that applies across different cultures, particularly in China, where the advances are significant and the investment in those is significant as well. So for starters, in, in China, there's been a real emphasis on, on secular ethics since the Cultural Revolution. So Chairman Mao famously or infamously tried to dispel the superstition of religion and to found a country that was basically modeled after technological progress and, and Marxism. So you have socialist values at play there. But you know, more recently, you see these values of Silicon Valley. So the idea of goodness there is... Um, you know, disruptive innovation. So there's a bias towards action. Move fast and break things is, is one mantra that you hear, you know, Google or, or Facebook or these, these digital engineers using. And, and that was very much the kind of ethos that was hovering around CRISPR, these, these kind of ideas of, of just, you know, do the thing first, see what happens, and then we'll figure out how to, how to deal with it. In my field, people are talking about anticipating the future and trying to think about what sort of values and ethics should be applied to govern this future. In a technical term, anticipatory governance. So we need to anticipate what's about to happen and sort of set up some rules of the road. So I think there's ideals about goodness, ethics, values, but also, you know, concrete legislative uh, things need to be put into place. So, so in this particular uh, case, in, in Chinese law, there, there weren't that many laws violated in this particular experiment, but there were profound human values that, that were violated. So even though Chairman Mao tried to get rid of the superstition of religion, as, as he styled it, very much there are religious and ethical values that have long histories in in East Asia that influenced how the Chinese public responded to this experiment. So prior to the birth of these two genetically modified babies, there had been other CRISPR experiments with human embryos in China, and nobody really noticed in China. There was a lot of hand-waving by bioethicists in the Christian tradition internationally, but for people who have latent values influenced by Confucianism or Taoism alongside Marxism and ideals about technological progress, that earlier CRISPR experiment didn't ruffle any feathers. It didn't make any waves. But, you know, in the Confucian tradition, a person becomes a person after birth. It's not like the Christian tradition where personhood, you know, is it the moment of the sperm entering the egg? Is, is, you know, is it 14 days? You know, it's a little a little fuzzy in, in Christianity, but there is a sense that, you know, thou shalt not mess with the holy gamete and, you know, at least particular articulations of Christian bioethics that influence like Republican senators and congressmen in the United States. So I think in this particular situation in China, in some ways, yeah, the legal framework wasn't there, you know, as, as it's not really there in the U.S. Australia, it turns out, has a pretty robust legal framework about this. Other countries like India also have a lot of 
pretty strict laws about what you can and can't do with genetically modified human embryos. But in China, at that point, the laws were unclear. Interestingly, even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some changes in China where there's a whole sweeping set of new guidelines that, that are in place. And it's not possible to do the same sorts of experiments with human embryos in China. Um, there's an exception, it turns out, for military experiments. During the course of this research, I learned of some of Dr. Ha's encounters with the military. And even before this was underway, you know, military researchers were encouraging him to do this in, in their labs the same laws and guidelines don't apply. But ultimately, because of that big backlash from the Chinese public, that public response saying, you've done something really risky to a human child. I don't see the justification here was, was the basic response from the Chinese public. He was basically charged with medical malpractice. So he was sentenced to three years in jail. So in, in the book, I reveal the details of the birth of, of these two babies. It hadn't been reported elsewhere until I published this, but they were born at 31 weeks, significantly premature. They had health problems that ranged from problems breathing, you know, all the variety of things that you associate with a, a very premature infant. So Dr. Ha announced this to the world. He claimed that they were as healthy as any other babies, which was profoundly misleading. Even with that misleading claim, Chinese society deemed that he had done something seriously wrong. And when they got involved in Dr. Ha's experiment, Lulu and Nana's parents were trying, as you say, to fulfill a really basic human desire, which was to have a healthy child that was also free of HIV and also free of the social stigma that comes with having HIV in China. Was this achieved in the end? It's complicated. So the book provides some background about the very complicated social and even sexual lives of, of the couples that signed up for these experiments. So in China, you know, many have heard of the one child policy that was enforced for many years. Now there's this kind of societal norm that you must have one child at least. Now, now you can have more than one, you can have two. But you know, there's profound pressure from parents. And for communities that are not heterosexual, for people who might identify as Tongchi, like comrades, that's that's a kind of euphemism that doesn't quite map onto gayness. It's it's a little bit different. You know, there's a sense of being loud and proud as the way to be gay in you know Australia or the US or Europe, but but there it's a much more complicated situation of living with the closet, living with certain kinds of social fictions. And along with this really intense pressure from your parents and society to have a kid, there's intense pressure to get married. So some of the men involved in, in this experiment, there was a number of couples, I believe nine in total, um, they had more complicated relationships than standard heterosexual couples. And um, they all had HIV. So all the men were HIV positive, the women were HIV negative. So these couples were trying to have, have children. And having HIV in China basically means you can't use, it's illegal to use standard reproductive techniques that would prevent you from transmitting the virus to your partner and your child. So there's things like a technique called sperm watching, basically spinning the sperm around in a centrifuge, taking out the sperm, leaving behind the semen, reducing the possibility to zero to passing on, on the virus to your, your partner or your kid. So you can't do that because of Chinese law. And some couples end up traveling to places like Thailand or the U.S. where there aren't such laws. But in the case of these particular couples, they either couldn't travel because they couldn't afford it, or some were members of the Communist Party or active duty military members 
who would need to justify this travel. If you're active duty military, you need to apply for a special passport to travel on personal leave. So for these couples who are dealing with these really complicated sets of conflicting values and desires surrounding baby making, surrounding what being a responsible citizen is, you know, if you're living with the virus, what, what are your responsibilities to others? They were trying to do good. And they found this experiment as sort of the only way they, they could meet with these conflicting values and norms and desires. Yeah. And were Lulu and Nana the only children born of this experiment? They were the first two, and um, there was a third one that was that was born. And the book chronicles the intense struggles that developed. So this this was not a simple experiment. And I went there on the heels of a bunch of public institutions disavowing any ties to Dr. Ha. And I document in the book all the institutions and individuals that helped support it. You know, not all, but at least some of the significant ones. And um, basically found that there were conflicts that emerged as, you know, parents wanted to go ahead and have their desire for a child fulfilled. Lulu and Nana had been born. It was known that some health problems were associated with the birth, but they were minimized, at least by Dr. Ha. And, you know, a second couple emerged, actually a second and a third couple emerged. And at certain points, Dr. Ha said, don't go ahead. And members of the lab said, don't go ahead. But they went ahead anyway with the hospital that that had the modified embryos in a freezer. At another time, um, you know, with one of the couples, Dr. Ha sort of encouraged them to go ahead, even even though um, they hadn't really figured out what had produced the health problems. And before they really even knew if the experiment worked, he, he actually never tested to see if he was able to produce human beings, human cells that were resistant to HIV. And and you wouldn't have to infect the babies with the virus to to do that test. There was blood in the umbilical cord, and you could have taken a small blood sample from them as as they were a little older. And all you'd have to do is challenge that, that blood with the HIV virus and see if it reproduces. But that very simple virological experiment was, was never done, in part because Dr. Ho was busy in his entrepreneurial ventures. He was traveling to Beijing, to California, to Thailand, to the special medical tourism zone called Hainan in China, trying to set up new business ventures and opportunities rather than focusing on the basic science and the health and well-being of these two children. And do we have any information on the health and well-being of, of these children as they're growing? Very little. And in part, that's because the parents don't want to be subject to ongoing surveillance and monitoring. So in addition to profound negative reactions targeting Dr. Ha on social media in China, on Weibo and WeChat, there were many, many derogatory comments targeting the parents, um, asking, you know, why would you do such a thing? Part of the desire of the parents was to not liberate necessarily from the disease of HIV, which is not much of a disease these days. You know, if, if you stay on your medications, um, your life expectancy in China or Australia or the U.S. is likely to be very similar to normal, maybe even better than normal because you're getting more medical checkups. But, you know, there's profound stigma associated with HIV, and they don't want their children to be living with the stigma, and they also don't want to be outed at work. So if your status is discovered, you could very easily lose your job in China. So in getting to know some members of the HIV-positive community, some who are associated with the experiment, 
I learned that people are often managing dual identities. There's the health insurance card that you use to get your medication. One benefit of being HIV positive in China is that you get free medication and counseling and testing for life. But then there's the identity that you use for work and maybe for social relationships. So the identity of, of the children and details of, of their medical status has, has been closely protected by the parents. The Chinese government has made some indications that they plan to kind of follow up on experiments that Dr. Ha never did, but it's, it's a subtle, complicated negotiation. And in one respect, it's important that the babies get the medical care that they need. But I think the risk is there that the medical establishment will step in and, and turn these children into lifelong experimental subjects. Absolutely. At a broader level, all of this really raises questions around the ethics of access or who owns the technologies that are being used to do this and, and therefore who, who makes decisions about who gets to benefit from or access to them. Are there any developments in this space in terms of frameworks or legislation that guides how we use emerging technologies like this? So part of the problem is that these new technologies are, are producing new extremes in medical inequality. So a few years ago, there was a big scandal about the cure for hepatitis, a chronic viral condition that until that moment was very difficult to get rid of. The price tag of that new cure was 80 grand, and a lot of insurance companies weren't wanting to pay for it. The book also um, follows, you know, some, some of the very first uh, gene therapies that have been rolled out, the very first gene therapy, which had a price tag of $400,000 in the U.S. You know, these therapies are effective. They might not be cures. The drug companies and pharmaceutical companies would like to have us believe that it's one and done, that you change the DNA and you cure a disease. But the patients who participated in the trials, and here I'm talking about some of my work in Philadelphia that pioneered the first use of CRISPR in clinical medicine in the U.S., but before that also pioneered the first gene therapy. So the patients who signed up for the gene therapy trial were living with children who had leukemia, and they'd been through so many failed experiments before that Anytime, even in the interview, when I was asking them, you know, what does it feel like to possibly get a genetic cure? They really pushed hard against that word cure and said, you know, it's been a few years, it's, it's in remission. We don't know if it's going to come back and, and we don't really know if there's going to be side effects. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but the pricing structure of these new therapies, that one, $400,000, a new one from the same company, Novartis, uh, funded these trials. Novartis now has a $2.1 million cure wow. for spinal muscular atrophy. They're marketing it as a cure. We don't know if it's a cure. And as a result, governments, national health plans, insurance companies are being forced to decide, you know, who lives and dies. People are starting GoFundMe campaigns. You know, if you happen to have $2.1 million lying around, like, go for it. It's all yours. But uh, most people don't. And the family that participated in that particular trial, Lisa Wilkins was the mother, told me she went into the trial not knowing if she was going to have to mortgage her house. And the mortgage analogy is actually pretty apt to where the field is headed. A lot of the executives involved in developing these therapies are also trying to develop new financial products. So in a meeting at the New York Academy of Sciences two years ago, they basically said, we'll have these new products and it'll 
just be like a college loan or a car loan or something like this. But if, if you can imagine being born into conditions of debt, so that spinal muscular atrophy treatment of $2.1 million, that's being offered to newborns, parents that are confronting this proposition. Do I come up with the funds for this or do I negotiate some kind of complicated financial arrangement? So if you can imagine being that child and, and growing up with that debt, even before you'd go to Harvard or Yale or whatever and, and you know rack up the tuition bills that you would have in the States. So it's, it's producing new kinds of inequality and also serious concerns if, if we're thinking about anticipating this future that's coming and the sorts of ways that we might govern that future. You know, can, can society afford these treatments? Can national healthcare systems afford these treatments? And I think it also relates to current discussions about intellectual property. You know, this is a very hot topic these days with COVID vaccines. So a lot of this new medicine was developed on the back of publicly funded research. So how is it that certain companies are able to patent and profit from this intellectual knowledge? I think it's something that is going to impact us all in terms of the collective resources that we have for healthcare. You know, it's, it's a much bigger problem than the community of people who live with HIV or live with leukemia. As, as a society, thinking about the near future, it's, it's something that's going to impact us all. Is there something in there about diseases or illnesses that are more common where the price will reduce over time for treatment versus, you know, rare illnesses or diseases where you're talking about a $2.1 million price tag that might only affect a very small percentage of the world's population. Yes. And I mean, so in part, what is connected to that price tag is the labor that goes into producing the cell therapies. So in trying to justify their massive price tag, part of what they'll tell you is it takes a lot of labor to make an individualized personal medicine. So if you have HIV or if you have hemophilia, if you get cut and just keep bleeding, I mean, there's a number of things like sickle cell, a lot of different diseases that will mean taking cells out of your body genetically modifying your own cells and then putting them back. So they say that that's a, a labor-intensive process. Yes, it, it, it probably is labor-intensive, but it's also a serious price inflation. Economists who've calculated around this have said that this is serious price gouging. There's other kinds of technologies, genetic technologies, that are going to be less labor-intensive to produce. So in the book I describe, without going too much into the details, a kind of cancer therapy that you could develop with white blood cells and you would just modify one blood cell type and then it could be used in a wide variety of people in a wide variety of patients. It's called a universal CAR T cell is the kind of therapy. And you know, if you were to develop that, that would in theory be a lot less labor intensive to manufacture. And then there's other gene therapies that would be delivered similar to how the mRNA vaccines are now with coronavirus. So in a sense, that's a gene therapy. I mean, it's not going to last in, in your cell. You know, mRNA is very quickly chopped up by cellular machinery, but there's other ways of packaging RNA or DNA into more stable things. So in part of the book, I chronicle the hopes, the dreams, the desires, the struggles of biohackers who were trying to genetically modify themselves. So taking published scientific papers, trying to design their own homemade gene therapies, 
And they basically wanted to create an extra little chromosome inside of their cells. And it didn't work. One of them ended up dead. I won't explain how. It's kind of one, one cliffhanger to draw you into that community. But the desire is there to produce these therapies in a more cost-effective way. But it's not profitable for these private companies who are making a fortune off it. Right. So so there's different business models. And you see at the same time that these big companies and these big companies are, you know, Pfizer, Novartis, and, you know, dedicated CRISPR companies like Caribou, Editas. And, you know, many of them are going for the bespoke personalized medicine approach. But you also see big players like the Gates Foundation investing in other kinds of gene therapies that would be more like a shot in the arm that would deliver something potentially to masses of people at once. At present, kind of these big companies that seem to have a stranglehold on at least the ones that are approved for market are are really just price gouging. Yeah. I want to talk about the concept of destructive innovation. And let's use DNA collection, for example. And on the surface, it's all about genealogy and bringing our ancestors to life or even finding out what medications work best with our particular biology. But what about under the surface? What's happening with that huge amount of DNA data that is sitting with private companies? So as I was looking into CRISPR and the ways that we can change the DNA of of humanity or other forms of life, I learned about these large-scale DNA collection schemes. And actually, one bit that didn't make it into the book is um, a big uh, symposium called the Giant Jamboree of iGEMS, genetic engineering competition where thousands of undergrads from all over the world come together in Boston, at least before the pandemic. And there, the FBI gave a presentation. And the FBI was, you know, trying to ferret out what they saw as the bad actors, but their vision of the future was terrifying to me. (laughs) So the FBI told these assembled biotechnologists that information was being collected about us today that is going to get integrated in new ways in the very near future. So some of that information is genetic. It's also our social media posts. It's also information from medical records. It's also information about our fitness. Your smartphone can even collect this. You know, it knows how long you sit in a chair. It knows how fast you walk down the street. It knows if you're biking or doing other activities like that. You know, massive DNA collection schemes are taking place. And some of this is, you know, people who are just curious, as you said, about, you know, my ancestors or, you know, do I have a gene that might predispose me to something like breast cancer? And, you know, in various jurisdictions, the FBI in the U.S., um, in China, various elements of of the security state are cracking into these databases in in various legal and not so legal ways. You know, companies like 23andMe and Ancestry have variable policies. Some of them have tried to protect their users from surveillance, but well-meaning individuals who upload their DNA into other databases are, are finding that this is being very helpful in FBI investigations. So suddenly your cousin commits a crime, someone who's, you know, you might not have seen for 20, 30 years, but who happened to be a, you know, enthusiast about genealogy. You suddenly get drawn up in this dragnet of potential suspects. There's also um, mismatches in these databases too. You know, these technologies are not infallible and you likely have one or maybe two people who have very similar genetic fingerprints. So some random person who's not even related to you commits a crime and you suddenly become a suspect. 
In China, one of the sites that I visited, BGI, is really pushing a prenatal screening test called NIFTY. And the book talks a lot about eugenics and the consequences of, you know, selecting quality children or, or the best child. But that test is also really without properly informing the parents. It's also creating this massive database of Chinese DNA. So in addition to collecting the children's DNA, they're collecting the whole genomes of the mothers. And this is the largest whole genome database in the world. This company, BGI, has a subsidiary called FGI, Forensic Genomics International. And there's all kinds of ways that DNA data has been used and abused in China. So you know, I, I think we need to be thinking about the security state, but also ways that genetic surveillance can play out in other arenas, arenas like insurance, arenas like employment. If an employer thinks that you're going to get sick because of some genetic predisposition, are they going to hire you? And really, with these intensified forms of, of data capitalism, the ways that these Silicon Valley companies are, are sharing data and basically monetizing these data, it's really hard to predict in a year from now or five years from now who's going to have access to these various kinds of data. I think without these robust protections, without anticipating that future and legislating for that near future to come, basically the rules of the road are being written by, by companies who have moneyed interests in that particular future. Eben, I want to bring the lens back to you a little bit and ask you, what do you find most rewarding about the work that you do and what is it that you find the most challenging? Well, conversations like this are certainly rewarding. It's, it's great when you, you know you sit down and, and write some something and someone reaches out to have a, a conversation. Some of the challenges are, and these are challenges that I've dealt with in concrete ways, but you know, translating some of the insights that you find from this long period of research into lasting policy change. So with my first book, I, I spent about a decade working on human rights issues in, in West Papua, a place where there's a genocide taking place. I was mostly working in Washington, D.C. with congressional leaders. I also have interfaced with policymakers in Canberra and, and in, in London. But in contemporary times where there's so many competing different hot topics, getting people to anticipate the future. Human rights are, are in some ways super hard because there's also like really entrenched powerful interests that are fueling genocides. But with these kind of more elusive future-oriented issues, you know, how do you catalyze change about something that hasn't happened yet? So that's some of the challenging things that I'm facing right now and trying to think about how to translate what I know into good policy moving forward. And I tried to write the book in a way that kind of opens up the stories to other people and not just give my opinion about what should happen, but describe in careful detail what is happening with a little bit of gesturing to what is going to happen. And, you know, I, I think that really opens the door for other people who read about this and want to get involved in legislative action and change, because this, this kind of thing you know, isn't just going to happen automatically. These kinds of changes only happen when people get involved and, you know, start talking to elected officials and transform the landscape. Absolutely. And if we don't know, then we can't make those changes and, and things will just move forward without us knowing. Evan, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And, and this is a philosophical question, something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. 
I think the biggest challenge is making sense of all the things that are going wrong at the same time, yeah. <laughs> figuring out a meaningful place to intervene, right? Yeah. You know, I've got students who are working on various problems right now, everything from incarceration in the States, um, in the United States, and, and the sort of gardens that are forming as, as a hopeful place where prisoners might learn to interface with the natural world in new ways. And others, that's uh, Elizabeth Laura Cameron McKean is, is working on coral bleaching as global warming is, is creating these catastrophic shifts resulting in mass death. You know, how, how do we understand what's happening, much less kind of intervene in a meaningful, responsible way? We're living in an era of mass extinction. We're living in an era where our own bodies are, are being exposed to toxins in new kinds of ways. We, we are in this experimental moment where it's really difficult to anticipate and predict what's going to happen next. I, I think, if anything, the pandemic has shown we might have had a vision of where the world was headed, where your personal trajectory was headed, where your career was headed. But things have been massively disrupted. And I think these moments of disruption are opportunities for disruptive action and change in meaningful ways. So a lot of the challenges is the imaginative work that goes ahead of the action to identify the thing that is worth working for. Where do you sort of place your hopes? And hope is a thing that can easily disappoint. You know, when the thing that you hope for is is too realistic and it comes true, whether you're hoping for the promotion at work or it's completely unrealistic, like you buy a lottery ticket and you want to win. And, you know, even if you do win, like your, your life isn't just good, right? So how do we configure hope in these times, I, I think is the most important question. What's worth hoping for? And then how do you take those hopes and bring them into contact with reality? You've raised an excellent point and something that I often hear from clients or people in the community that I work with or I talk about doing good and what it means with this feeling of overwhelm and this grappling with the idea that there are too many problems and I don't know where to put my energy. So I'm just going to be an ostrich and stick my head in the sand. And I think that's something so many people really struggle with because we care about what what is going on in the world. We're aware of it more and more these days. There's constant news about the complex social challenges in our world. And there are many, many different responses and angles we can take to address them. And my question to you is, how do you choose what it is? You spent 10 years working on a very specific issue in West Papua. How did you choose where to put your energy? A lot of times it's by accident. So, you know, I stumbled into West Papua as a high school exchange student, you know, trying to get to my six month homestay in Java and later came back and found myself in the middle of a genocide and a revolution. I think as I'm trying to think about what is possible, you know, horizons of future possibility. A lot of times it's about identifying things concretely that are within my sphere of action. If I do this, this concretely will be different. There will be actual real material consequences in the world. I, I mean, you can also think and act as if everything matters in a real sense, like everything 
produces material consequences. Every time you turn on the light switch or decide to hang out your laundry to dry rather than using the, the dryer, like these are consequential actions that do things in the world. But at the same time, you're thinking about things within your sphere of immediate influence. I think it's also important to reach out to others and build big coalitions that are capable of reconfiguring horizons of possibility. So, you know, even elected officials, and, and I've become close to a number of people who are in elected positions of power, they're limited in their capacity and they need us to either show them what's possible or radically transform the imaginary horizons so that we can collectively do something that seems inconceivable now. I think that's part of what needs to happen is you know, certain segments of society love getting out in the street and sort of shaking their fists at the sky. And, and I think the kinds of collaborations that might emerge between elected officials and folks who feel relatively powerless, like that can be really transformative. So that's where I see hope is that new possibility of coalitions that change how the future looks. Absolutely. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? You know, I, I think it's related back to hope. So hold on to hope, find things that are worth hoping for and do that critical work, you know, bring your own ethics and values to bear on this field of hope and then reach towards your dreams and bring your dreams towards reality. I love that. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. Hmm, Alondra Nelson. So Alondra Nelson is a very eloquent author. She's written a number of books. Her, her first one was about a Black power struggle in the U.S. It's about the Black Panther movement and the way that it basically offered health care to people who were being abandoned by the government. She wrote another book called The Social Life of DNA that looked at the role of genetics in reparations cases. So people were gaining standing in court by demonstrating that they had a genetic connection to slaves. So they were able to sue insurance companies and make claims saying, you made money off of the unpaid lab labor of my ancestors. And um, you know this, this is how I'm gonna get standing in court. And now Alondra is a official in the White House. She is part of Biden's science and technology team. So Alondra was, was my mentor uh, last year at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And now she's, she's taking, you know, some of her ideas and, and putting them into practice. Wow. Amazing. Evan, where is your favorite place on earth? Ooh, that's also challenging. I really like the island of Biak in, in West Papua. It's, it's a place that inherits some very troubled histories. So it's a place where I witnessed a massacre in 1998. I was in Biak as a college exchange student as, in university and watched a number of people, hundreds of people, get loaded onto a boat and taken out into the middle of the ocean and dumped overboard. Uh. So this massacre killed scores of people. And in the face of indifference on a global scale to what happened in that particular moment and the ongoing struggles that the indigenous peoples of West Papua live with, they continue to fight and struggle for change. So Biak is also a beautiful place. It has some of the most amazing beaches in the world. It's got a tropical forest there. It's full of rich traditions of, of singing and dancing. It's a place where indigenous peoples really taught me how to hold on to hope in the face of 
utter despair, you know, situations that would put, you know, most of us in this situation of total despondency. I think the BIAC peoples have really learned how to innovate and find possibilities for a livable future. The latest bit of news about BIAC is that Elon Musk is planning to establish a launching pad for his SpaceX program there, you know, with a stone's throw from where this massacre took place. And of course, he didn't consult with the indigenous peoples. He consulted with the government and got a contract with them. And even in the face of these international alliances that are squashing the dreams of the indigenous peoples that live there, in some ways, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for people on the global stage to notice not only the beauty of this place, but the situated struggle that the indigenous peoples who live there are undergoing to kind of reclaim autonomy in their own homeland. Absolutely. I, uh, I interviewed John Martinkus on the podcast recently. Uh, have you read his most recent book? No, I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. And that was a fascinating interview. And there isn't enough talk about what's going on in West Papua. And this is happening right on the doorstep of Australia. And you wouldn't even know. Yeah. What book are you reading at the moment? Gosh, let's see. Actually, just a remarkable one that I read yesterday, and I'm going to have to find the exact title. It's by Christos Lentiernis, who's in Scotland. He's an expert on pandemics and epidemics. And Human Extinction in the Pandemic Imaginary is his latest. And, and he's, he's thinking about how we might not just think about the current pandemic, but the long legacies of emerging diseases like the bubonic plague and the earlier SARS through the lens of, of colonialism and empire and the ways that the capitalist world system has created new kinds of vulnerabilities. Um, so I just really enjoyed that book and enjoyed, I talked to him on Monday. Amazing. What about podcasts? Do you listen to them? I do. I, I listen to a bunch. Um, one of my favorites is Snap Judgment, Storytelling with the Beat. You know, it's, it's one produced out of Oakland, California, and it has some of the more imaginative, you know, storytelling projects enlivened with music, enlivened with irony, you know, comedic juxtaposition. So that's, that's my favorite. Excellent. Eben, it has been so amazing to talk to you. I really appreciate your time and your book was just excellent. And I, I encourage everybody to go out and buy it and read it and talk about it with other people because it really does raise some issues that I hadn't considered. And I think we're not hearing enough about the advances in technology and the effects that they will have on our own lives and our children's lives. So Absolutely read it. And I cannot wait to read your next book, as I'm sure there is one on the horizon. Yeah, I'm working on a long, slow book about uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that's responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's not going to be a fast book, but a considered book. Excellent. Well, I really, really look forward to it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. 
We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.